0: Open your Bibles with me to um, Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 6, and I just was on my heart, I've been easing back in after the time we took away, and um, giving some of the wonderful men we have here the opportunity to use their gifts that God has given them. Um, But something's been on my heart lately, and it's that there's some things I used to teach in school of ministry. We had a school of ministry here for, oh, probably 15 years. And then when I became senior pastor 10 years ago, we tried it for a year or so, and it just it just didn't work. And there'll be a time for it again. But I, there's some basic things I taught in those courses, in those schools, things that God had given to me and I'd written, and um, very foundational things that, that some of you may have never heard before And others of us that have heard it before need to be reminded of us. And if you're neither of those, I need to be reminded of it. So I will be teaching this to me and let you listen in. Hebrews chapter 6, we're going to look at verse 13. And this is going to be a very teachy session. I'll explain to you what we're going to teach and, and how we're going to lay this out. Verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Now, in our culture and day and age, swearing is has a negative connotation to it. But if you look in in, in Matthew, I think it's six five, where Jesus talks about swearing. If, just your yes should be yes and your no should be no, because the culture that this was written to, when you swore, by, when you, because your word wasn't necessarily good, in order to make somebody have confidence in your word. You would swear by something, which means you were, you were basically putting that name or that person on the line for whether or not you were telling the truth. So one of the expressions that people used, well, I swear on my mother's grave, I'm not sure that her grave could do anything if you lied, but it was a sign of how solemn your word was because your mother was so important to you, something like that. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is when God spoke to Abraham, in order to let Abraham know that he could trust him, he went to swear by somebody, but there's nobody higher. God couldn't find somebody higher than him to swear by, so God had to swear by himself. And we'll see what that, how that plays out in a minute. He could swear by no one greater, so he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. So after he had patiently endured, this is Abraham, he obtained the promise. For indeed men swear by the greater. So when man swears an oath, he swears by some higher authority. For an oath for a confirmation for them as an end to all dispute. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying is in order for somebody to make sure that you can trust their word, because we're not sure we can trust people's words, somebody would swear by something that was more solemn. So we have, the, we have the practice established in court that before you give your test, it used to be that you put your hand on the Bible, but since they have removed the Bible, now you just swear by, you know. So you, then they remove God, too. So you've got to find something higher than you to swear by. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, in order for God to make clear to Abraham that he could trust him, Following man's conventions, God had to find somebody to swear by, but there was nobody greater than Him, so He swore by Himself. And what we're going to study will play this out. For God determining to show, this is important, God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise, the immutability of His counsel. That's just a fancy word for the unchangeableness of His word and confirmed it with an oath. So what this is saying is when God made a promise to Abraham, and we're going to see this play out as we go through this, God had to find a way that Abraham was familiar with so that Abraham could have confidence that God was going to do what God was going to do. Even though God can't lie, men have trouble understanding that. And this ties into where we are, because when it comes to the promises of God, and God cannot lie, why do we struggle with that? We struggle with that because all our life we've known men and women that didn't tell us the truth, and one of the major ones that never didn't tell the truth was us. We lie to ourselves all the time. We lie about our good intentions, knowing good and well. We're really probably not going to do it. And so we have trouble trusting the word of man, especially our own word. So now when it comes to trusting God, how do we make that jump? Well, in Numbers 23, God speaking to a prophet says this, Numbers 23, 19, in order to understand that, you have to understand this basic principle, God's not a man. The verse is, God is not a man that he should lie. So what, what, what the Holy Spirit is saying there, so when it comes to evaluating God's word, forget every person you've ever known, because God ain't one of them. That's not good English, but I'm trying to get the point across. God's not a man. So you cannot decide whether to trust God based on your trust of anybody else you've ever known. That's key. God's not a man that He should lie, nor the son of a man, in other words a human being, that He should change His mind. So God, in order to communicate this to Abraham, who's the father of our faith, confirmed it, it says in verse 17, by an oath that by two immutable things, that means unchangeable things, in which it is impossible, in which it is impossible, in which it is impossible, not hard, not unlikely, in which it is impossible. The Greek word therefore, impossible means not possible. Got that? It is impossible for God... Lie! I got to be careful here because I want to go on this this little side road. Well, I'll go on it anyway. In John chapter seventeen, verse seventeen, Jesus says, "You don't have to put it." Jesus said, "Sanctify them by their word. Your word is truth." Now let me tell you what that does not say. Jesus did not say sanctify them by your word, you always tell the truth. God does not always tell the truth. God cannot not tell the truth. You can decide to tell the truth or not tell the truth. God cannot decide not to tell the truth. And here's why. What that verse is saying is truth is whatever God says. When you and I speak a truth... We're doing the very best we can to line our words up with reality. So if you come and tell me something, Gary comes and tells me, you know, I did such and such a day. Gary's telling me, that. in order for me to find out if Gary told me the truth, I take Gary's words and I match them up with what happened. And if Gary's words match up with what happens, then Gary told me the truth. Everybody follow me so far? This isn't hard. But when it comes to God, He's not a man. When God's words don't predict the truth, God's words create the truth. Everybody with me? God's wor- Your words and I word- predict the truth. I'm going to help you tomorrow, Denny, to whatever it is you need me to do. And that may be the sincere intention. I'm predicting what's going to happen. God doesn't Predict what's going to happen. God's Word makes it happen. Remember how the universe was created? And God said it happened because God said. God's words are creative. So here's what John seventeen seventeen is saying. Truth is defined by whatever God says. God's Word isn't measured against truth... Truth is created by what God says. My mother had a way of saying this, except she's not God, so it didn't work. She said, if I say black is white, it's white. (laughs) Whatever I say, that's what goes. But with God, that's the truth. So that's why he can't lie. If he tries to lie, it's now truth. Some of you will get that later on. I don't have time to dwell on it. Okay. All right. So the hope that is set before us. Okay, what are we going to talk about tonight? What God did, what, this course is entitled Blood Covenant. We're going to study for the next five weeks, not its succession, because we have some interruptions, the Blood Covenant that I taught over ten weeks in the School of Ministry. So we're going to look at tonight several things. We're going to look at why it's so important to understand this. Why, why is that so important? Secondly, what are covenants? What are covenants? And then what is a blood covenant? Now, I have a, a, a particular understanding of this because of my legal background. I was a lawyer for over 20 years. And lawyers deal in covenants. They deal in contracts, but they also deal in covenants. And there's a, we're going to learn there's a difference between a contract and a covenant. Most people, and, and Brian Sumner when he was here actually made a reference to this, but he didn't go into detail. I'm going to go into detail. But before we do that, why is it so important to have a working understanding of the blood covenant we have? Because it's the basis of our relationship with God. We just looked at the verses where God said, I want to have Abraham have a basis for confidence that everything I tell him is true. So though I tell him that although you're 75 years old and your wife's 65, she's barren and you're both barren, vast childbearing age, I'm going to have you produce a son in her womb, and that son's going to be the father, you're going to be the father of many nations through him. By the way, look at the stars tonight. That's the number of your descendants, and you're too old to have a child, and she's barren. What's Abraham going to put his confidence in? Because he didn't really know God to know, so God entered into something Abraham could relate to, that gave Abraham the basis for confidence that he could trust God. We need that same confidence. We need that same confidence. Because we lack confidence in ourselves, we lack confidence in God. So anyway, that's the, first of all, it's the basis of our... Our basis of our relationship with God is, listen carefully, is not based on His whims and His moods. We may have grown up with people that were moody. We know people that are moody. You may work for somebody that's moody unless you work here. And so we just think God, we we transfer to God what we know about people. Often it's from our own parents. My mother, wonderful woman, I was the oldest of five boys, And whenever there was an issue that needed to be discussed with her, I was elected as the liaison because I knew her better than the rest of them did. I knew when to approach her and how to approach her. Because like others, she had the good time to approach her. No, this isn't the best time to go to her right now. And those of you that are married have some understanding of what I'm talking about. We won't go there. This gives us, God's, God is not whimsical. Our relationship with Him is not based on His feelings or our feelings. Our relationship with God is solid. It's based on a written covenant sealed in blood. Most Christians are floundering because they do not understand this covenant and the terms of the covenant. It's like this. Suppose that you got a letter in the mail from large, some large firm in Providence or Boston or New York, saying this such and such, who is a great great, is a distant uncle of yours, just passed away, and you are the primary beneficiary of the will. Would you take that letter, assuming you realized it was sincere, and just throw it out and say, "Well, that was nice," and go on about your business, or would you begin to make some inquiry, and would your hopes get up a little bit? that maybe I'm going to get out of debt. Maybe, 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 maybe. You would go and try to find out what is in the terms, what am I getting? We're going to see Abraham had exactly that response once he realized what God was saying to him. Second thing is, it gives verses at the basis of our relationship with God. Second is the foundation of our faith. Faith is in something. There's no such thing as blind faith. Your faith has to be believing in something. In what? And the blood covenant is intended by God to be the foundation of what we put our faith in. Without an object, faith is blind. And blind faith takes you nowhere. Faith will be no stronger than what your faith is in. Faith will be no stronger than what your faith is in. The third thing, is the blood, understanding of the blood covenant establishes for us forever what is God's will and what is God willing to do. So many Christians struggle in their faith and prayer. Well, I don't know if it's God's will or not. The blood covenant, understanding the blood covenant will make clear to you what God's will is. Now, not who you should marry, but what God has provided for you and the, and the boundaries of that. Because the blood covenant, listen carefully, one of the most important parts of understanding this, the blood covenant shows us what God has already given us, and already done for us. Most Christians are trying to talk God into doing something that God has already done, which is why their prayers aren't working. The covenant shows us what God has already given, that He's given everything He has. And once this becomes a reality to you, faith becomes easy and obedience becomes easy. And the fourth thing is that the basis for answered prayer. Prayer is not getting God to move. God's already moved. But prayer helps us receive what God's already done. I'm talking about prayer for ourselves. When we believe, really believe the covenant... It's hard to believe that you will not get results. All right. So let's talk about covenants generally. What is a covenant? Because it's a term that's the basis of this course. You hear teachings on blood covenant throw the term around a lot. And here it comes down again to to the benefit of my legal training and my legal experience. I'm going to give you a definition of covenant. And then we're going to talk about what makes it different from a contract. A covenant is a solemn agreement between two or more parties where a commitment is made. Let's break that down. It's an agreement, so it takes two parties to agree to it, but it's solemn. Solemn is a term we don't use very much, but it used to be in legal documents, if you were signing a contract, There were two types of signatures you would do, where you could just give a general contract, sign, general signature. Then there were some documents signed under seal, going back to the old days when they would use a wax seal. They would pour wax on it, and each person would have kind of a signet ring, and they would put that in there. The difference between a sealed contract and a signed contract is a sealed contract was considered more solemn. Why? Because your name now backed up your signature. And under law, I, it's been 20 years since I practiced, so I don't know if it's still true. Richard maybe you'll tell us. Under law, a sealed document had a longer statute of limitations than a, is that right? Boy, I'm pulling stuff back from ages ago, than a contract just under, under signature. Nowadays, you don't put a seal on it, it'll just say, un, it'll recite under seal. But the concept is it's solemn. Solemn means I've thought about it. Solemn means I'm serious about it. It's not just something of my whim. I just, you know, okay, I'll do that. But it means I've thought about it, and so much so that I'm willing to invest something in it to make sure that it happens. So a covenant is a solemn agreement between, and that's, agreement's important because you have to agree. Unless Amos 3 3, unless two or more agree, how can they walk together? An agreement means. I have to know what you're promising, you have to know what I'm promising, and they have to meet. We have to agree on the same thing. So it's solemn, it's an agreement between two or more parties where there's a commitment made. Something is given along with your promise to guarantee that you're going to fulfill your promise. That's part of why it is solemn. It's different from a contract. A contract, and I'm going back almost 50 years to law school. So Richard, if I'm wrong, correct me. But a a contract is merely an exchange of promises. I promise to do something, in exchange you promise to do something back. And there has to be an exchange of promises to be a contract. But all I'm giving is my word, and all you're giving is your word. Some contracts are in writing, but they don't all have to be in writing to be binding. In some... i got to be careful, I'm going to get into a law school. Some, some of them have to be in writing and some don't. But the point is, it's just an exchange of promises. Denny says, I'm going to do this, or I'm, I'll say, I'm going to do this for Denny. Denny says, I'm going to pay you this. We've got a contract. Now, you have to have enough terms so it's clear and all of that. But the point is, it's my word and your word. So a contract is only as good as the word of the people signing it and their ability to perform it. How many of you ever had a mortgage? Okay. You'll know what I'm talking about. You went to buy a house and you didn't have the cash or want to pay the cash you had to buy the house, so you went to a lending institution. It used to just be banks and now it's all kinds of institutions. And you applied and say, I want to borrow, let's say, I want to borrow $100,000 because I want to buy this $200,000, whatever, house, Okay. And the bank looks at you. They do a credit check and say, Ron, you're just, well, you know what this is all about. You're a great credit risk. We want to we we loan you our money because we want to make money off of you. Okay? So we want to loan you our money. You're a nice-looking guy, upstanding. Good. Okay, let's sit down in the closing. You need $100,000. All right, we just signed this paper, said I promise to repay it, and here's your $100,000. Thank you very much, John. Ron, I know you'll pay it back. Thank you very much. We'll see you in 20 years when this is paid off. It doesn't happen, does it? No. Doesn't happen. They want a little more than that. They want a thing called a mortgage. Now, I don't know about Rhode Island, but in Massachusetts, when you sign the mortgage deed back to the bank, you are literally transferring legal title to the bank subject to their obligation to restore it to you when you pay it off. Why don't they trust you? You promised with a note you're going to pay them back. You gave your word. You have a binding contract, a binding agreement. How come it's not enough for them? You could die. You could go broke. You could change your mind. You could backslide. (laughs) So they want a little more assurance than just your signature on that note. They want something called security. Security makes them feel secure that if you don't fulfill your promise, they're not going to come up short. I've got to be careful. I can go on so many side trips here. So a contract, I'm simply giving my promise, you give a promise back. But with a covenant... I am committing something to you to back up the promise that I made. It's interesting, when I was putting this course together years ago, the way my mind works, I break words down. And I had a lot of Latin growing up, and so that sometimes helps me to break them down. The word commitment, I didn't have a slide, I, I had one a long time ago, Is it has a prefix com, C-O-M, and mit, M-I-T. Well, mit comes from a Latin word mitio, which means to send. Come, the precepts come, means along with. So what a commitment is, is when you send something along with the promise that you made. Everybody following me so far? Okay, this, this is building a foundation it's going to go somewhere. I'm breaking it down very simply, because if we just jump into definitions of things, you won't get the real essence of what this is all about. So with a covenant... The parties commit something. They pledge something as a guarantee that they're going to fulfill their word. So a covenant has a greater assurance that the word is going to be performed for two reasons. First of all, before you make that commitment, you think should think twice. That means I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do. Because if I don't do it, I'll lose the house. If I don't do it, i lose whatever it is I've committed. The second reason it's more secure is that if for some reason the other party can't do it, you've got some security that you can recover your loss out of that. And so what it is now in a covenant, you are giving now what you promised as the security, or the pledge is another word, that you will carry it out. So you don't sit down at a, at a closing for a house, sign the note, and if it looks like and you lose your job, then you give them the mortgage? No, you give them the mortgage now. They don't, leave, they don't let go of that check until they know that not only have you signed the mortgage, but it's been recorded and it has precedent over everything else that could have a lien. Then they release the proceeds. So it's done now. The commitment is made now. It's sent along with your promise as the security. Everybody still with me? Okay. Now, there are different types of covenants. We won't look at all of them, but you need to be aware that there are different types of covenants. And the difference in the types of covenants is what is sent along as the guarantee or pledge of your promise. For example, there are business partnerships Business covenants. And in a business covenant, there's a pledge or commitment of different assets to it. In some of those, it's a commitment of all your assets. In others, like a limited partnership, it's only a commitment of limited assets. So what is committed determines the type of covenant. Don't worry, just, we're gonna, this is basic, simple teaching stuff. But it's gonna, you're going to be so excited by the end of this course. And the more valuable what's pledged, the more valuable the covenant. Everybody with me so far? Okay. more valuable the pledge, the more valuable the covenant. Let's talk about covenants a little bit because covenants are a little strange to us. In other parts of the world especially in the Middle East and in the East, covenants are very common. But the concept of a covenant, especially a blood covenant, is a very old concept. It predates Abraham. So what we're going to see when God entered into a blood covenant with Abraham, Abraham understood exactly what God was doing. What God did was God didn't create a blood covenant to enter into Abraham. God chose an institution man had created so that Abraham could relate to it and have confidence in it. God's Word alone should have been enough, as it should be to us. But God understands us. God understands we often need more than just His Word for us to feel confident and secure that He's going to... He doesn't have to do that, but God's nature is... God's not trying to prove who He is. God wants us to get it. God wants us to get... He wants to help us believe he wanted to help Abraham believe. So God looked around, and he didn't do it this way, God already knew. God chose something Abraham would understand and say, that's what you're entering into with me? I know what that is, therefore I can believe you. And that's what he, But that was easier for Abraham because he lived in a culture where these were very common. So we're going to talk for just a minute about that. They're very old, found in many, almost all ancient civilizations. Very common in Eastern civilizations where vows were taken very seriously. And as Westerners, we usually mean contract when we say covenant. So we need to change our idea of a covenant. So, what's the purpose of a covenant? It provides certainty in human dealings. Without certainty in business relationships, if nobody trusts each other, nothing's going to happen. So, it provides certainty. That bank is not going to give you the $100,000 unless they're certain they're going to get it back with their interest. All right. Without certainty in relationships with God, nothing very significant happens. And this is why a lot of Christians are stalled. They don't have much of a prayer life. They don't see results because they really don't have confidence that God's going to do what God says He's going to do. It's a very simple way to find out how much you trust God. And that's by what you do. What do you do in a crisis? Some emergency comes up. Unexpected. Emergency. Disaster. What's your first reaction? What do you do first? Let your mouth start running? Oh my gosh, we're going to die? What do you do? Because whatever you do... Now, the first instant may be a fear, but what do you do with that? That will tell you an awful lot about what you really believe and how much you really trust God. And again, as we've been talking about on Sunday morning, it's it's wise to be willing to locate where you are because God wants to meet you where you are to help you grow to where He wants you to be. So it's not a time to pretend we're somewhere that we're not, but to find out where we, we really are. That's covenants kind of in general. But now I want to begin to talk about blood covenants, a very particular type of covenant, and it's the covenant that the Bible uses for what we're going to talk about. There are other covenants in the Bible. And and it's one of the oldest types of covenants, very common in the culture of the time of Abraham, and Abraham would have understood it. Back in 1842, from 1842 to 1873, There was a missionary named Dr. Livingston who traveled throughout Africa for that whole time. And they didn't have cell phones, GPS's, websites, you know, emails or, 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 and so what happened is they lost track of him. And so a reporter, a reporter named Henry Stanley and an explorer, a a journalist and and an explorer decided to go and to try to find him. And that's where the famous, you know, Dr. Livingston, I presume. Some of you may have heard that. And he found Livingston in 19, 1871. But the, the story that they both went through as they're traveling through the remotest parts of Africa because they're going from one tribe to another, don't know who they're dealing with, don't know who, what the next tribe's going to do. They, they learned that the practice in these, in these tribes, was for tribes to enter into covenants, blood covenants with each other. As we're going to see as we get into this, one of the ways they would do that is mark their body. So there would be, if I were, if my, if my, if I were to enter into a tribe, and this is what, what uh, uh, Livingston did, when he entered into different cups of covenants, there would be a mark on his body or some symbol, so that if he ran into somebody else, they would know he's in covenant with somebody else. It was done for protection. It was done to solemnize agreements. It was done to to help mutual needs. You may have, we'll talk about this as we get further into this, you may have one group of people, one tribe, that had no water, but but they were warriors. And then you had another tribe that had a source of water, but they weren't very good warriors. So they would enter, and this is a hypothetical one, they would enter into a covenant whereby the one tribe would make their water available to the warriors, and the warriors would pledge to protect them. So, so if you're one of the tribes that just has the water, you're a watering tribe, and you're off in trouble somewhere, and these guys jump you, you hold up your palm or some indication of who you're in covenant with, they know that if they mess with you, they're also messing with them. So the covenant, the blood covenant, gave you a sense of security and broadened your base of security and your stability. So these were well known, and if you were to spend the time, and I've got a book that has some of these in it, and go through Chronicles, some of these covenants that that Livingston and Stanley entered into, it shows that these were very real. Both of these accounts give many examples of entering the blood covenants. Now, how does it differ from other types of covenant? Remember I said a few minutes ago that whatever is pledged determines the type of covenant. Whatever's given to back up your promise determines what type of covenant's made. So, if you give certain business assets, so in a, in a true partnership, what happens is suppose, suppose David and I decide to enter into a pro- partnership. And I've got a bunch of great ideas, and David's got lots of money. You like that idea? All right. <clears throat> So we've been talking over coffee one day, and I said, you know what? We could really do something with this, but I don't have any money. David says, I got the money, but I don't have the ideas. You know what? Let's pull this together into a partnership, where I commit into this partnership my ideas and the ownership of my ideas, and David commits the money that's going to be needed in order to produce this partnership as success. But what I commit to it determines the type of partnership that it is. A blood covenant is a pledge or commitment not of your money, not of your house, not of your time. A blood covenant is where you literally commit your life to the other person as the guarantee that you will fulfill your promise that is why it is the most solemn of all covenants because I have committed that if I violate this if I break my word I forfeit my life that's not something you enter into lightly but it makes it the most solemn the most secure type of covenant It is mutual. It is a total commitment of one's entire self to the other. All your assets, all your liabilities, all that you have or ever will have, and all that you are. And because it's total, it represents the highest And most binding and most respected agreement known to man. The only thing like that in human experience is the covenant of marriage. The covenant of marriage in God's eyes, not in the world's eyes, not even in the government's eyes, but the covenant of marriage in God's eyes and he's the one that instituted. it, is when you say, I do, you are pledging, not just the words, until death do us part, you are literally pledging your life to that other person for whatever they need, whatever the time of day it is, whatever the resources are, you are pledging your life to them. But it's more than that. It's not just, I'm going to give it to her, but I can mail it to her from China. It is literally giving myself to her. It is literally giving herself to me. This is why God hates divorce, Malachi. If you've been divorced, God forgives divorce. And sometimes there are situations where it just cannot be This It's what's necessary to do. But it is the breaking of a union in God's eyes. It is the breaking of a union. And because we live in a culture where people don't enter into a blood covenant when they get married, they enter an agreement. 50 50. I'll give to you if you give to me. But if you're not giving enough to me, I'm out of this deal. I'm going to go find somebody else who'll give to me what I need. There's a scripture in John 4, 14 or 15 where Jesus said, If you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. That's a pledge. I'll back up whatever you ask. And then he turns around and says, but if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So there's a mutuality there. We, we often like the part, you know, what, if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. But the next verse says the opposite. We'll talk down the road about what the covenant requires of us. There's a verse in there where, where Jesus, basically it says this, Jesus is saying, if, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I remember one time right up here, teaching it, right right in this spot here. And and, and I saw it. It's like it's like, it's like when this 20-year-old, which is what I was, fell in love. You know, I don't want to go there because I'll get distracted. But all I could think of is I just want to be with her. I just want to be with her. You get a young 20-year-old male who's in love with this beautiful... 20-year-old or 19-year-old or, you know, maybe a little older than that. And, 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 and she says, I love you. I really love you. What she means is, I give myself to you and I don't care about anybody else after this time. That's what she means. He means, I want you because you give me pleasure. I love being with you. I love what I get out of being around you. I love, I love, because you, you make me feel good. And then they get married and five years later wonder why they're having trouble. They didn't mean the same thing. But we do that with Jesus. Oh, I love you, Lord. I love you. You do so much for me. You bless me. I love your presence, Lord. But what happens when I get up and I don't feel his presence? What happens when things aren't going the way I think they should go and I've been asking him to change something and those kids still act the way they still act and I don't see any changing? You know, Do I still love him then? For better or for worse? In sickness or in health? Till death do us part? Do I still love Him that way? Because that's how He's loved me. He loved me without any promise of getting anything out of me. He gave everything for me without any promise of getting anything back from me. That's the commitment He made to me and you. Have we made the same commitment back to Him? We'll talk down the road. Maybe that's why we're not getting all out of the covenant that the covenant promises, but we'll look at that later. But I want you to see the commitment is everything, and here's why: because the essence, and this is the if you don't get anything out of this course, if you get this, it'll change your life. If you really get this, the essence of blood covenant is to become one. It's union. In Genesis chapter two. There's the first marriage. The first marriage is different than any other marriage. God created man in His image. God created them. How come He created them and He created him? In His image. Because Adam... I'll just... I'll say this slowly because if you've never heard Adam was both male and female. Because we tend to think of male and female as different. Well, not so much anymore. <laughs> what we do in here, right? There is a difference between male and female. All right. But God made, them in His, Him, made Him in His image, and God is both male and female. God has all the male, female, male characteristics of, of logical thinking, right brain or whichever one it is, Linear thinking. Women tend to be intuitive, sensitive, more spiritually sensitive. God was all of that, and He put all of that in Adam. And then God says, it's not good for that man to be alone. Notice Adam didn't say that. Adam didn't say, everybody else has a partner, I'm lonely. I've heard that taught, but I don't see it in there. God said, it was not good for him to be alone. I mean, when you're, when you're by yourself, there's nobody to argue with. Do you want to leave the clothes on the floor? Who's going to, the woman side of you may argue with you. <laughs> so what God did is cause a sleep to come on Him, and then God, listen carefully, God, out of that one person, God separated the female out of Him. So you had, listen carefully, you had one person, Unit, one soul now separated into two different bodies. Everybody following me? And then God says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. In other words, every other marriage goes the opposite direction. You take two different people and you join them together as one the way Adam was as one before they were separated out. Everybody following that? So the essence of covenant, blood covenant, is to now become one. There's a union. One of the things God's had me meditating on for almost a year now, not straight ahead, but over and over again, is all the Scriptures that say, in Him. If any man be in Him, He's a new creature. In Him we live and move and have our being. We've been made the righteousness of God in Him. We are seated in Him and with Him in heavenly places. God predestined before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame in Him. Everything you have with God is because you have been made one With Christ. Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17 is that we would be made one with Him as He was one with the Father. My brother and sister, that's not some symbolic thing. That is a spiritual reality more real than the teeth in your mouth and the chair you're sitting on. And when that union becomes real to you, it changes everything. And the reason. We struggle. The reason we're up and down, the reason we have trouble with our prayer life, the reason is because we really don't understand, really do not believe we are one with Him. And He's the one. We're complete in Him. So why would God do that? Why would God take a man that's got all the qualities in him and separate him into somebody else with their own separate will and some separate way of looking at things because God has a sense of humor. No. <laughs> because it's learning how to love and relate in a covenant to someone who sees things differently, thinks differently, responds differently, and to do that in love is what causes you to grow. I've heard Robert Moore say, people think that God created marriage so we could be happy. Doesn't say that in the Bible. God created marriage so you would learn to die to yourself. It's easy to do it in church. It's another thing to do at 2 o'clock in the morning or whenever with somebody that knows you better than you know yourself. And we'll change the subject there. So the essence of it is union. Is union. Why a blood covenant? What is the significance of blood? Leviticus 17, verse 13. Whenever a man of the children of Israel or the strangers who dwell among you who hunts and catches any animal or bird that it may be eaten, they shall pour out its blood and cover it with dust. Why? For it is the life of all flesh. It is, its blood sustains its life. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is in its blood, and whoever eats of it shall be cut off from the tribe. It's to take that animal's life into... So what they would do is, he would, they would slit the throat, drain the blood out, and cover it with dust, so you could never eat it or drink it. It's why the Jews were forbidden to drink blood in any kind of ceremony. And it's interesting. I had a checkup the other day, and they checked my blood. And they want to check, they want to check my, my red cells, they want to check my hemoglobin and my crit, hematocrit, because what they've discovered is your blood carries life to all the cells of your body. Because what, what your, every cell of your body needs is oxygen. And the thing that transmits that oxygen to the cells of your brain and all of your body is your blood. The life is in the blood. So in the Bible, blood represents life. So a blood that's why a blood sacrifice was the giving of a life, which is why God honored Cain's and not Abel's and not Cain's. Get that right, yeah. It's the giving of blood. That's why without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. It's a life in place of a life. When blood is shed in the Bible, it represents the giving of life. Now listen carefully. It does not... This, listen very carefully, because this is where we misunderstand. It does not mean the giving up of life. When I stood in front of a minister... Almost 52 years ago, with her, I didn't give up my life, I gave my life to her. It does not mean giving up a life, but it's giving your life to another. And if it's given in place of someone else, it re- represents giving of that other's life. And what they would often do in the Old Testament is animals would be sacrificed. So because they go, you're not going to sacrifice, in fact, there's a, the, the Bible requires that the firstborn male of every womb be sacrificed to God. And if God, if we had to literally carry that out, my son Chris would not be the executive here, because we would have had to sacrifice his life. God, because He was the firstborn male of her womb. But what God provided for is you could take an animal, and you could sacrifice the animal in place of your firstborn son. And that becomes important for us down the road, the substitutionary sacrifice. It explains why God required animal sacrifices for the sins of men, because sin requires the death penalty. Because in ultimate, is rebellion against God, and the payment for sin is the giving up of a life, and God would accept, as out of grace, the substitute of another life for our lives. So here's, it's not giving, if it's not given in place of another, it represents the giving of your own life. All right, what does this all boil down to? What's the meaning of a blood covenant? What are we coming down to this? Okay. It means a total commitment or giving of yourself and your life to another. This is why we've made it almost 52 years. Not because I've been the easiest person to get along with. And every once in a while, on an extremely rare occasion, she may have had some difficulty, because we're all human. And those of you married understand what I mean. Because if you 're going to be real with one another, you bump into one another, especially if you get married young, or maybe you 've been, you've been a bachelor for a long time and get married. that 's even harder, maybe. But my point is is, is is there were many times when the easier thing would be to get out of it. i can 't do this, and i can 't tell the times we both said i can 't do this. But we made a commitment when we got married, and, and neither of us were saved. but I determined to make this commitment because my parents were divorced and I did not want my children going through what I went through. And so before we got saved, there were times where the the only thing that held us together was we made a commitment to each other that come hell or high water, we were not going to get a divorce. Murder was a possibility. (laughs) We never mentioned that. And there have been a number of times and I don't want to go into the details right now, but there came one time, it came so close to our marriage breaking up that it was within a hair's breadth. And it was the commitment that I made to God, before God, that whether I would die rather than divorce her. And at that point, it felt like that's what's going to happen. Because I had issues in me. But my point is, it's that commitment that's brought us through everything, that allowed God's grace to work in our lives and work in our marriage. One of my stepbrothers, who's no longer with us anymore, I remember we were visiting my mother at one point, and he was there with his girlfriend. And he'd been living with her for some time. He's not been saved. And he, he pulled me aside one day, because he said, why did you marry her? And at first of all, what do you mean? Then I realized what he meant. said, I'm getting all the benefits of marriage. So why do I need to do that? And I looked at him and says, Michael, I married her for the same reason you won't marry her. I want her to know ahead of time that matter happens. I've committed to stay with her. You're not marrying her is telling her there may be conditions under which you're going to leave. I don't want to do that. It wasn't long after that they got married. It's a total commitment, giving of yourself and your life to another. It means that the two covenant partners become one. Whatever happens to one, happens to both. It means all your assets, all your liabilities, all your abilities, strength of one, and all your assets, liabilities, other belong to the other. I'm going to say something that may get me in trouble here, but I'm not. Senior pastor, I've been in trouble before sweet couple came to me for, to be married, and she grew up in the church. This is, we're talking 15 years ago, maybe more than that. And I'm going, bright people. I mean, he was an MIT graduate, just bright people. And, and they, we're talking, and we're getting near to the end of the premarital counseling. I can tell there's an issue, a struggle going between them. And I couldn't pick, put my finger on it. So I began to ask some questions, and so then I get into this question, and, and I, I say, okay, let's go through the ceremony. And I said, and so at the end, I'm going to have you stand up and say, I now now present to you Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so. And And she looks at me. She says, I'm not taking his name. And I could see the reaction on his face. Now, the situation here is he's in the military. And once they get married, he's about to be deployed for six months. And what she doesn't understand is he hears that as a questionable commitment to him because while he's unavailable to her, her name is going to sound everybody else as if she's single. And I looked at her and I said, sweetheart, I know you well. I know you've been raised in this church. And I'm not trying to force you. I'm just telling you, I will not marry you if you don't take his name. And I'm not hung up on names, because what it's telling me is where your commitment is. You don't yet understand what a blood covenant is. And people nowadays may get upset at that. But we're trying to preserve my identity. And that's the very opposite of what a marriage is. Fifty-one years, a half years ago, I lost my identity to her. So now it's our identity together. It's our identity together. People don't want to give up everything for someone else. And that's the essence of a blood covenant. A blood covenant was so serious that if one party broke it, their own family would hunt them down and kill them because it threatened the whole covenant. The pledge of this covenant or commitment or guarantee is your own life that's set along with your prom- promises next week we're going to we're going to look at how they were entered into and then we're going to look at god entering into covenant with man i want to set this background because i want you to see that when we go through these steps and we see God entering into a covenant with Abraham, we understand that God is bringing something to Abraham that already existed and Abraham already understood. And that God, again, I've said this two or three times tonight, but I want you to get this. God didn't create covenant and convince man to enter it with him. God took something man had developed to give him certainty, and God said, I'll submit to that so that you can be confident that I will do what I say I'll do, even though I cannot lie and my word is unchangeable. That's how much God wants us to believe Him and trust Him. Let's pray. Father, as we look into the word of God and we study this concept, this institution that you've entered into with man of a blood covenant, we ask the Holy Spirit to begin to open the eyes of our understanding that we would be able to receive the full the full impact of what you've done in the covenant that you've entered into with us through Christ. Lay the foundation for that as we study this together. Lay the foundation in our understanding, lay the foundation in our heart that when we come to the part of your word that shows what you've done for us in Christ, our hearts would be open, our minds would be open, to receive the fullness of what you've done for us. That we would never ever be the same again. Holy Spirit, we trust that to you, and thank you for that. In Jesus' name, Amen. Before we close the service.